God's Word together as we continue to look at our uh, distinctives, what makes us us, essentially what we've been doing. Um, but I want to start off with a theoretical scenario. Imagine that I handed you an invitation this morning uh, that you opened up on your way home or maybe you stuck it here first and found it two days later and opened it up.
graduation from high school. Congratulations, Wilbur. You know, you would know a little bit more about what to do or what what that's going to look like. So if we understand from Scripture why we're gathering, I think the implication will be more obvious to us. I hope we leave this morning with a couple of things in mind that are more specific even. One, totally the praise. Praise that God has invited us into corporate worship. That this is even possible is where I want to start. And the second thing is that we would, as a result of doing this, we participate more actively in the services that we have together. Because God is helping us understand what's going on. Okay, so let's look at this first phrase. Uh, the Holy Spirit makes corporate worship possible. That's what I mean when I say the Holy Spirit enables the church's corporate worship. What do we mean by the first sentence of this distinctive? We say, we gather for corporate worship to glorify God by exalting Christ through the Holy Spirit. Through the Holy Spirit. I think it was Ken John who asked the question, maybe it was someone else, in a refresher course of membership. What do we mean by worshiping through the Spirit? And this is what we're doing this morning. It's a good question. That's why I want us to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. 1 Corinthians chapter 2. You can find that in your Bibles. We're actually going to stand for the reading of this. I'm going to read the, the whole chapter, 1 Corinthians 2, to us. This will help us understand how corporate worship is possible. Now, as you're turning there, preparing for this, I want to warn you about something. If you have heavy preferences about worship, this might flatten those a little bit. Okay? Just warning you. All right, First Corinthians chapter 2. Here's what it says. And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power. That your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Yet among the mature we do impart wisdom, although it's not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. So we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit, for the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the Spirit of that person which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? We, the mind of Christ. Why is it that in our understanding of corporate worship and what we're doing and gathering together, we start here in 1 Corinthians 2? It's because texts like this give us awe at what God has done to make a people for himself. It creates awe in us that you weren't manipulated into trusting Christ. The power of the Almighty Holy Spirit made his message come alive to you. That's how you're worshiping. That's how you're a worshiper. The gospel is the gateway into corporate worship. So before you worship truly and sincerely, you have to understand that God is our creator, that we rebelled against him in sinful independence. 
we deserve judgment and separation for minimizing what he's worth? He sent his son to die, to, to live and to, to rise again, to take the wrath of God on himself, right? To come again one day for judgment. And by doing that, by rising from the dead, he paid sin's penalty, he, he defeated his power. All of that stuff is required for corporate worship to happen at all. How does a person come to know this, uh, or to be able to worship according to 1 Corinthians 2? Well, it's, he makes it really clear in this passage, it's not in the presentation. It's not because there's a really articulate and wise speaker. Paul intentionally didn't talk that way so that people wouldn't put their faith in him, but put their faith in Christ. It doesn't come to us, you don't understand it because, well, it's relevant and it's a topic that people want to hear about. Paul actually limited his message to just one thing. What does it say? Christ crucified. It's not the topic and, and the excitement over that. It doesn't come from logical arguments. Paul actually avoided this plausibility, these easily digestible messages to present Christ. So it's not in the presentation. And it's not because the cross makes sense to us. What does it say? That God determined to transmit his secret wisdom through this packaging, his son Jesus, that Jesus would be, would be crucified as a common criminal, and that's how God would reveal his wisdom? Even the, the, the demonic realm didn't, didn't get what was going on, or they wouldn't have like, sealed the deal on God's rescue plan by killing him. This is what this cross and this crucifixion is what our eyes couldn't see or it's what our ears couldn't hear. It's what our hearts couldn't even imagine. And so how is it that in millions of places around the world right now, people are gathering to delight in and worship something that their eyes couldn't see, their ears couldn't hear, and their hearts couldn't even imagine? How is that possible? If you keep reading it, you look at verse 9. After it says that, it says, These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit that gives us understanding to be able to worship. The simplest things that you know about God and about what He's up to in the world and what He's done through Jesus Christ, you only know because of the Holy Spirit. And think about that. Stuff that you're accustomed, you just think is so ordinary, typical stuff. You couldn't know that, except for that God's help to, to, to lead you to know that. And because you know that, now you have something to say and sing and, and praise Him for, and you wouldn't have done that on your own. Because the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, right? That's what it says in verse 14. There's folly to us. You can't worship what you don't understand. And we didn't get that. We didn't get the gospel without the help of the Holy Spirit. In John 14, 16, it says, The world cannot receive him, speaking of the Spirit, because it neither sees him nor knows him. 2 Corinthians 4, 4, The God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel, of the glory of Christ. So why we're we talking about why we're gathering and worshiping and what we do, why are we talking about 1 Corinthians 2? Because it's an absolute miracle that we're even here. Right? That's where we start. We're talking about well, corporate worship and worship wars and hymns and contemporary. No, we start with we were dead and now we're alive. Amen. Because of what God has done. Because of the ministry of the Holy Spirit. So the fact that we can worship at all is where we start. That's wonderful news. That's great news this morning. To know that it took supernatural work for us to praise Him and to worship Him. You see how all of that frames this discussion about corporate worship. If we start there, the worship wars in the church are totally different. Right? If we start in that humble place, all of our preferences, all that stuff, if we're gathering week after week, by the Spirit's power to, quote, understand the things freely given us by God, we won't be petty. Right? People who are receiving free things and understanding by the Spirit of God don't get petty about small stuff. 
They just don't. So that's why it's so important for us to start here that, that the Holy Spirit has enabled us to do that. So how, what, what are the implications of this? Our attitudes in corporate worship ought to be humble and grateful. We should be in awe of that. We should be in awe of that. Not because oh, you should be in awe when you come into this place. Because things are so organized and so great here. No, because you've been enabled. Your heart has been set free to worship what's worthy. So what is your heart's attitude towards worshiping in these corporate gatherings? Is your understanding of Jesus that precious to you? Is your knowledge of Christ God's great achievement, or is it your own achievement? We've received invitations to worship Him. It's incredible. So that's the first implication, is our attitude would be grateful and humble, that we'd be in awe that we can worship at all. The second, it would also mean that those leading various aspects of the service should sense our neediness, our total reliance on the Holy Spirit. That needs to be a very tangible sense as we go throughout these services. Because if God's Spirit doesn't help us, and He doesn't illuminate Scripture, and He doesn't teach us, it doesn't matter what we do. Nothing's going to stick. Nothing's going to work. Nothing's going to bear fruit apart from Him. So we, as those who are leading this church, need to sense this massive dependence. I'm thinking about this task of preparing a worship service throughout the week. It's so bizarre. Because Tim and Kelly and I and all the leaders involved, we can't ultimately do anything. <laughs> and yet, we're diligent and we're, we're working and we're laboring behind the scenes according to God's word to, to, to set up uh, this scenario where we're worshiping. We are so utterly dependent on him. We should sense that in our midst. So that's the first thing, that the Holy Spirit enables our worship, but he does direct us and he directs corporate worship to be two things that seem to be kind of opposite, and that's structured and spontaneous. Now that we, we can be grateful for what he's inviting us into, let's talk about well, what is he actually calling us to do when we get together to worship. I want to read to you from 1 Corinthians 14. Let's listen to this. And this is kind of a scene where we see both in the worship of the New Testament church, we see some structure in place, but we also see some spontaneity going on. In 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verses 26 to 33, I just want to read that to you. You can remain seated. I'm just going to read this briefly. Here's what it says. What then, brothers, when you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation, that all things be done for building up. If any speak in a tongue, let there be only two, or at most three, and each in turn, and let someone interpret. But if there is no one to interpret, let each of them keep silent in church, and speak to himself and to God. Let two or three prophets speak, and let the others weigh what is said. If a revelation is made to another sitting there, let the first be silent. For you can all prophesy one by one, so that all may learn, and all may be encouraged, and the spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets. For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. Now, this sermon isn't going to explain all that's in this text about these gifts and how they all work. And what I want to point out is that both structure and spontaneity are present in the New Testament church. Okay? Paul is kind of, he's coming in to, to correct an overemphasis in the Corinthian church on certain gifts and on more than I would say the spontaneous uh, side of things. And so he's building in some structure when it comes to the gifts of prophecy and tongues and they, they kind of swelled in importance and he's trying to, to bring some structure to that. So he says things like limit the number of people who do it and when you do it, make sure it's interpreted. When prophets speak, make sure that the people are weighing what's said and not just everything's not the same weight and authority. Take turns. You know, don't talk over one another, this kind of thing. So you can clearly see he's trying to bring some structure to this. But even though he's 
frame of structure, you can see that there's a sense in which the Spirit is moving people in this, in this congregation in, in a way that's more spontaneous. Where there's an expectation for the people to come, ready to serve and ready to minister in ways that God has prepared them to do. So worship is in chaos, and it needs to be orderly, but there is some spontaneity in it. So what I want to do is talk about each of these things, structured and, and spontaneity, so just so we can try to understand, one, how is it that we approach things right now, how do we need to grow as a body, and look at those two seemingly opposing things. Let's look at what structured worship means. Just the word itself might sound stifling to you, right? Structured and planned and organized, sounds like a worldly way of doing things. But God really determines how he's to be worshipped, right? Let's be honest here. He gets to, he gets to make that call, okay? We don't create that on our own. So when people say to me, well, I, I like to go out to the beach and worship instead of going to church, or I like to go to the forest and worship instead of being a part of an institution and uh, kind of got my own thing going on, I'm not, I'm not down on that because I think you can't worship in the forest or can't worship at the beach. You should. There are easy places to worship, frankly, because we've got beauty. But the problem with that is that it ignores how God commands us to worship, the full source of it. It pretends like the idea of worship is impersonal. And it's not. A life of worship includes being a part of a community. God puts his people in a body, in a temple, in a flock, in a family. All those images are corporate images, meaning we gather together to do this. And he's particular about this. So no, you can't worship God in every sense that he desires if you're doing it on your own. You just can't. But God doesn't just stop there saying, well, you need to gather and worship. He, he also is specific about how worship is to happen. If you read the Old Testament, you'll see that very quickly. God is particular about how this works. And so he puts in place his various covenants to kind of provide structure around, well, how are we supposed to worship him? That overall banner and heart is the same. We're supposed to love God with all our minds and heart and soul and love one another. That's the same throughout all of them. But, but there's different forms to this. And in the New Covenant, forms of worship don't look like the Old Covenant. So a lot of things are fulfilled in the New Covenant. So Jesus is our sacrifice, our lamb, our priest. We are being built together as the temple. Right? And he's met the demands of the law. So how we worship now is different than how we worship in the Old Covenant by God's instruction. Now, that might, might sound like, well, yeah, we've kind of eased up a little bit, but actually, it's ratcheted up. Because now, all of our lives are, are sacrifices of worship now, right? It's not a locale, it's not a law that's guiding that. All of our lives are worship. So worship under the New Covenant is where we get some of these specific instructions from God, and I would say some of these phrases that are in our distinctive. If you remember when we went through the book of Acts earlier on in chapter 2, they're committed to certain things, right? They're devoted, it says, to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, the breaking of bread and prayers. We know as we look through Acts and as we look through the Bible that we see generosity and ministry happening in the New Testament church. We see the church preaching and singing and praying and sharing the gospel, and we see apostles and elders leading. There's, there's a coordination between churches, though. There's councils that come together. There's, oh, this church is really struggling, so we're going to take up a collection for them. All that's happening in the New Testament as well. So worship under the New Covenant is, does have some specifics to it. As you look at worship in the New Testament, you see that there's a real focus on the person of Jesus. And this shouldn't surprise us. If we're going to worship through the Holy Spirit, Jesus says that one of the things that the Spirit comes to do is to expand his teaching and explain his teaching and glorify him. So in John 14, it says, Jesus says, the Spirit will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Or in John 16, speaking of the Spirit, Jesus says, he will glorify me, for he will take what's mine and declare it to you. In 2 Corinthians 3.18, it says, And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. Now listen, 
comes from the Lord, who is spirit. Philippians 3, 3. For we are the real circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus. So the New Testament church is going out of its way to make Jesus the focal point of their gatherings. So when we say we, we gather together to exalt Jesus, the reason we say that is because that's what the Holy Spirit wants us to do when we gather together. We go out of our way to make sure that happens. If we go through a service at Redemption Hill and Jesus is never mentioned, that's a massive problem, right? Mm -hmm. And we could be worshiping any God if we were going to do that. But we go out of our way to exalt Jesus specifically. Yeah. You think, wow, the Holy Spirit's really getting specific with this. He gets even more specific. You know how? He authors a book. <laughs> I'm not into putting boundaries on God and all those things and saying what he can or can't do. But when God says, this is my revelation to you, I'm going to accept that boundary. This is how he instructs us and teaches us and shows us how to worship. And so he offers a book. I mean, why is the Bible and everything that we do, and why does it affect and why do we hear about it all the time? And if we're going to worship through the Holy Spirit, that means we're submitted to his word. He wrote it for our instruction, for our help. Jesus says when he's praying, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. In 2 Peter 1.21 it says, For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God, according or as they were carried along, it says, by the Holy Spirit. So this is his book. So we're going to let our worship as we together be in accordance with and reliance on, is what we say, God's word, the Bible. That means that we should never do anything that contradicts Scripture. Never. But it means more than that. It means more than not just not disobeying what the Bible says. It means that we're also after the positive sense of obeying what it's saying to do. There should be a biblical flavor or residue on all that we're doing as a church. Now the Bible you open up, it doesn't say you should meet at 10 a.m. and make sure to sing this song, right? And stand up, sit down. It doesn't go through the specific instructions about how that works. It leaves that up to, to our own uh, discretion. But it does uh, direct us and it does guide us in how we do this. So that's why we read long passages of Scripture. It's why we refer to it all the time in our services. It's why we encourage you to bring your Bibles here. Or if you didn't bring them, to grab them. It's why we're doing that, because the Holy Spirit, that's how we worship through the Holy Spirit, through His Word. Now, we say that we're committed to gospel-centered expository preaching. Okay, what does that mean? Expository preaching, again, comes back to Scripture. It, expository preaching simply means to let the meaning of the text be the meaning of the sermon. Okay? It means that God's preference and what he wants to communicate is more important than what a man wants to get across. Okay. A lot of times for us it means that we go chapter by chapter, verse by verse through books of the Bible. But expository preaching doesn't have to do that. It basically just has to say, we submit to what God intends to say. Okay? So we're not going to do violence to the meaning of a text. We're going to rightly handle what the Bible actually means. We don't set the agenda. God gave us a book. Really helpful. But we're going to let him speak. So this morning... We're preaching on a topic, right, that's distinctive, but we're doing so in a way that doesn't disturb the intention of any one of the texts that we're referring to. It's really important that that happen. That's what expository preaching means. And gospel-driven, what does gospel-driven mean? And this is, these words matter. Well, the central message of this book is how to be made right with God through Jesus Christ, right? That's the point. So when you get together with people who you know, you typically talk about what you have in common, right? If you're all Giants fans, you'll talk about the Giants. If you're into the Warriors right now, you'll talk about the Warriors. If you're into knitting, you'll talk about knitting, right? And when the church gathers, the center of what we're gathering around is the gospel. It's how we all ended up here. I mean, how else would we have gathered this group of people, honestly? Like, what common strand is there? Because it'd be really hard for us to find one. So the gospel is the center of what we're doing. 
Which is why inviting people into that to help them see that, that to know and love God means you have to understand a message about this man Jesus and his death and resurrection. But it also means that we grow around that gospel as well. Because that's what gospel-driven means. It's related to this word. And, and God has really bound himself to what worship is going to look like according to his word. So, all this talk about structure is an attempt to be faithful to what new covenant worship is. The Holy Spirit, he says specific. He says, exalt Jesus. He says, guide, be guided by my word. Keep the gospel central to what you do. And our, our, our distinctive would just be something on paper that we tell you about in the membership class and wouldn't be alive unless we had that phrase intentionally coordinated in there. That's where we take all these things and we, we infuse them into what we're doing as, as a church. So let me give you some practical ways that this actually shows up in our life and ministry. Okay, hopefully this helps you. There is an ongoing dialogue about the sermon before and after Sunday morning. Okay, so Tim or I were preaching and we're talking about it. We talked a couple different times this week about this sermon because it's a little different from what we're used to and being in a specific text. After Sunday, we'll ask questions like, was that clear? Was the gospel evident? Was Jesus there? Was the meaning of the text the, the point of the sermon? So that happens. Another way to manifest itself is we're, we're kind of picky about what we sing. Music is a really powerful way to teach and instruct, and God designed it to edify our body. And so songs matter a lot. And so our uh, music leaders hear the direction of the sermon and try to pick songs that are going to match up with that. And kind of come in and, and actually help and lift and, and illuminate what's going to be preached in the Word in just a few minutes. I don't know if you know that that's, that happens all behind the scenes. Because we're trying to, to get something specific across about what God is like. And I think, why all the fuss for that? Like, why not just come here and just like play your favorite song? You know, like, why, do, why all the hassle? And it, it's because specific praise is better. And what I mean by that is that if you um, have you ever been complimented by someone, if someone just comes up to you and says, comes up to you and says, you're just a great gal, you know? You're just great. Yeah. Okay, thanks. You know. Next day, you're you're you know, you're a wonderful person. Oh, okay. Thank you. Thank you for that. I appreciate that. But then it's just day after day, like these vague, general, all encompassing things, right? You're like, I'm not sure. But if, if someone came up to you and said, you know, I, I see God's mercy at work in you and how you interacted with that person. I just wanted you to know that. Or when you're patient with your kid who's screaming their head off in your face, that's really powerful. That's how it works in your life. You see how there's different there, there's a different power in those things? Where generality and vagueness just it isn't as you, stuck, you feel that differently than more specific praise, right? We want to praise God specifically. We want to get after why is he glorious, actually. Like, what, what's worth talking about when it comes to talking about God? And we want to do all that we can to underscore that and show that off. Instead of being more vague or more general about that, we want to be specific. The approach to song meeting is a pastoral thing. It's an act of care for an entire body of people. I mean, we need to be singing songs that cause us to be joyful and celebrate and also to help people who are in pain and who are in sorrow. We need a whole body of songs to do that. We also, one other thing we do is we spend our words carefully. We don't think that, that something is spirit-led if and only if it's unplanned. We just don't think that. Because the ministry of the Holy Spirit and His presence is far greater than like 9.45 to 11.30 on a Sunday morning. Right? So as, as people are preparing to preach, the Holy Spirit's working with them. As song leaders are choosing songs, the Holy Spirit is present in that. As we're thinking about what to pray and how to put services together, we, we think God's Spirit is actually working in those moments. And we don't want to minimize his influence by just saying, well, we'll just wing it from 9.45 to 11.30 and hope that he does something. 
We think his ministry is bigger than that and broader than that. Now we're going to talk about spontaneity here too and how the Spirit works through that as well. But we don't want to minimize the work of the Spirit by not thinking that planning and thinking ahead is somehow reducing him. So we want to spend our words carefully. Okay? Now, structured doesn't mean flawless. Okay? Let's be really honest here. We are aware that things are limited, right? Mistakes are going to be made. Lyrics won't always match up. Some sermons are going to be mediocre. Maybe you think this one is. <laughs> Song keys may be in the wrong range. Bulletin typos are there, and all that stuff's going to happen. Okay, just as we do have a way that we try to catch those things, the things that are distracting or unhelpful. Uh, almost every week we do that. But structure doesn't mean flawless. Okay? We're on planet Earth, and we're in a fallen place. I remember one of the funniest things okay, that I've witnessed in terms of this happened in the church in Los Angeles that I was in. It was a Christmas service, a very kind of somber, like, reading kind of service thing was happening. And the guy gets up there to read Luke 1.28, and where it says, And the angel came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one. And instead he said, Greetings, O flavored one. <laughs> the Lord is with you. And of course, he felt horrible. He couldn't recover. The whole group was laughing, cracking up. And then he kept reading and said, But she was greatly troubled at the saying. And everyone stopped and everyone laughed at that. And everyone feeling horrible. And he kept reading and said, And she tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And then it was like, Alright, the moment is lost. A bummer. One word wrong and things go. So structure doesn't mean flawless. We're not under that impression. We, we're okay with that. We're, we're, we're alright if, if something goes wrong. Okay? So structure doesn't mean flawless. But as we do this together and as we worship together, we do need to be confident that God's Spirit is going to accomplish what He desires to accomplish. That's what's crazy about it. Is that God take our flawed attempt at doing this together as a body, week in and week out, and He does what He wants? It's amazing how many times totally unintended things in sermons end up ministering to people. I mean, as, as I was telling Bree this morning, she asked, How are you feeling about it? I'm like, Well, you know, I've learned over the years that how I'm feeling about it oftentimes doesn't really matter. Because God just uses his word in ways that, that I could never have anticipated. I'm just not smart enough to know the effect that God intends for this to have on me. And week by week, he does his work. Through a sermon, through a song, through a conversation, through a prayer. All kinds of different ways. God is going to do his work. So we need to be diligent, right? We're not going to be sloppy about this. But we need to be confident that God's spirit is capable of taking the, the, the crazies <laughs> in charge of things like this and using all of the, those efforts to, to, to glorify himself, to accomplish what he wants. It's staggering that he calls us to do this. You know, why doesn't he just provide an angelic preacher or angelic song leaders? Why does he not just totally control every aspect of this thing? I think it's to demonstrate his power. We can be confident that the Spirit is going to work, even though this is a flawed attempt. So how does knowing this help you participate? I said in the beginning, the goal here is to, to, to be in awe that we can worship at all. And second, to participate more fully. So, maybe we pay attention to how songs connect. Maybe we pray for the preaching in advance and come more prepared for it than we were before. Maybe we adopt this distinctive as our criteria for whether or not a worship service was good or bad. Jump in when asked to participate in things. Don't let glitches distract you. But look at what God's Spirit is doing. Let's talk about spontaneity a little bit. There are spontaneous things occurring, right? As we saw in 1 Corinthians 14, the body is participating in this in a way that's not planned. Do you know why 
when Paul took up that collection for the poor in Jerusalem, why he did that? It's because someone stood up and, and, and prophesied that there would be a famine, a man named Agabus, right? And so the church responded to that spontaneous act and leading of the Holy Spirit. It's in the midst of a time of prayer that God set apart Barnabas and Saul for, for ministry. And it was in the structure and kind of the rhythms of worship that God just broke in and did something unique. So in Acts 16, 16, it says, As we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and totally sidetracked with something different. Acts 20, verse 7, On the first day of the week, when we gathered together to break bread, Paul talked with them, and this was the time when he went on so long preaching, that the poor guy Eutychus falls out of the window and dies, and has to be resurrected. I mean, that's, that's kind of in the rhythms of normal worship, and then the spontaneous thing has to happen. We see this happening in, in the book of Acts. And there is an expectation that when we come to worship, we're ready. We're ready. We're engaged. We're, we're prepared to minister, not just to absorb, not just to take in, but to serve and to do what the Spirit wants to do in our services. So one, one of the simple ways that we do this is we change things up and we'll occasionally have services committed to prayer. We'll call on the body to share and be prepared to testify about something. When we do that, our expectation and our hope is that you would take that so seriously that you would prayerfully think about how can I edify the body this Sunday? And that you would come prepared to, to share and to minister We try to include different kinds of things in our services. We don't want to get stuck in a rigid way of doing stuff. We know that ruts can be dangerous, right? It's our desire in the future to leave more room in our services for these kinds of things. We've recently merged, as you know, and so it's not surprising that we're kind of, kind of operating within what we're familiar with, but it's our desire to grow and to look into what this, what this looks like as a church culture to, to include spontaneity in what we're doing. But the heart of that, the, the, the foundation of that, is that you view yourself as the scriptures describe you as a minister of the gospel. It's really important as we gather. So if the Lord is prodding you to pray with the person after service, you need to do that. If the Lord prods us to preach in a different direction than we had planned, then we better be prepared to do that. The Lord leads us into confession of the body, or we engage in something that requires a response from you, then we need to be ready to do that. We want to be pliable and flexible and available to the Spirit to guide in the way that He desires. And as leaders, we want to encourage that kind of a culture. You probably know this isn't a blank check, right? Like if you stand up and say, hey, I got a book, and it's just as authoritative as the Bible. The Spirit will probably lead us to remove you from the room, right, for a little conversation, okay? So this is, obviously, there are, there are boundaries to this that we'll find together, but we want to encourage a spirit of permission when it comes to following God and what He's calling us to do. So we'll mature together in this, we'll be patient with one another, and our weaknesses will probably mess us up from time to time. But it's our desire to obey and to live together with this sense that God is near us. God is here. I heard you thought about that this morning, but the Holy Spirit is present. What if, week after week, we reminded ourselves of that? We operated with that sense of submission and desire to please Him. So we're desiring. We're praying for. The Holy Spirit has desires. He has passions. We want to fall in line with those passions. We cannot live Christian lives as functional deists, acting as if God isn't going to interact with us. We can't, we're not afforded that option by the New Testament. So, how does this help us participate? Well, this is going to keep us on our toes. To keep us prayerful and attentive to God as we gather together, right? It should be encouraged, be, help us to be spiritually attuned during the week so that when it comes time to gather, we're in a position to minister. 
You see, spontaneity is born out of maturity. I don't know if you know the, the great musicians, but when, when great musicians improvise, it's just beautiful, right? But the reason that they can improvise is because they've practiced so hard and been so diligent learning those skills and learning all the things. So there's a sense of freedom because they're mature in what they're doing. And I think it's the same when it comes to following, actually, the guiding of the Holy Spirit. Where if we just think that's just going to happen all of a sudden because we're with a bunch of people in a room, it's not, right? It's, it's from interacting with God throughout the week, being in His Word, being in prayer, being encouraged throughout our weeks. So spontaneity is born out of maturity. And when that structure of worship is in our lives, spontaneity is a beautiful thing. It should help us to be brave and help us to obey where God is prodding us. Maybe this leads to a conversation in, in a life group or with a, a leader or with someone in our church. Basically what I'm saying is we want all of the activity of the Holy Spirit, not some of it. Okay? We need all of His grace. We want all of His grace. So this is a desire to say, when we get together, let's seek all that God intends for us. That's what it means to worship through the Holy Spirit. What I'd like to do to end um, this sermon is just to have a time of prayer together. You knew it was coming, right?